You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be joined by NLC 2013 Miami fellow Roxana Eldon is here. She's got a book out. Want to talk about it? Want to make sure you hear about it? So let's get to it. All right, Roxana, your book is called Adequate Yearly Progress. Uh, can you tell people why you called it that? Well, it's a novel. And it takes place in an urban high school. It follows a diverse group of teachers as their personal lives crash into their professional lives and vice versa. Adequate then, yearly, sorry, go on. I was going to ask, you know, in that, in that phrase, it definitely brought me back. I hadn't heard adequate yearly progress in oh, many years. I, I taught, uh, I guess my last year teaching was 2008. Why, why was that phrase ended up being the title of the book for you? Well, adequate yearly progress, just a quick um rundown of what it is for people who are not teachers is a term, I believe George W. Bush might have put it into play, but it has it's a way of rating schools, but it's become just such a buzzword in education that uh, I think anyone who's involved with education will be familiar with it. But then also, as I was thinking about what to name the book, I was thinking, you know, adequate yearly progress is kind of what we all want in our lives also. <laughs> so it just... It started to make sense given what was happening with the characters and then given the school setting. And the book is kind of humorous. I always compare it to The Office, but if it were set in an urban high school. (laughs) So I I felt like people who, even if they weren't familiar with the education world, I would get a little laugh out of them when when they heard that title. So that, that felt like it was working. Yeah, it makes sense. And then when you were in the classroom, what grades did you teach? What subjects did you teach? I started as a fourth grade teacher in Houston. I taught ESOL classes in um, fourth grade, all subjects. And then the majority of my um, the majority of my career was in Miami, teaching high school English. Biggest difference between fourth grade and high schoolers was what? Kids can walk themselves to the bathroom. <laughs> it does help for sure. <laughs> it does. Um, and then at, at any point when you were teaching, did you? feel like for sure you're going to write a book at some point? When did this idea come to you? So this is my second book. My first book is called See Me After Class, Advice for Teachers by Teachers. And that's collected advice from teachers around the country to help new teachers make that transition from their training to the reality of the classroom. So it's funny, honest, and filled with practical advice. Um, I started that book during my sister's first year of teaching. My younger sister started teaching three years after I did. And I found myself giving her all this advice that should have been in the books that I was supposed to read and should have been covered in the trainings. And instead I found myself either reading these books that were very inspirational, like the teacher of the year for the entire country would write about why their classroom was so amazing which if you're a new teacher and things aren't going that well for you, it just kind of emphasizes the distance between where you are and where you want to be without being very helpful. Or I was finding that there were a lot of just kind of simple training guides that would repeat what you learned in your training, but not help you troubleshoot based on the things that you may have done wrong or based on the things that aren't going the way people told you that they would be. So that's where that book came in. And that was about three or four years into my teaching career. And when the book came out, what happened to your teaching career after that? Did you start doing book tours in the summer? Did you go to 
like teacher conferences and talk about the book there? What, what kind of things actually happened in your day-to-day life once it was published? Once it was published, I, I was still teaching. I, it came out in June and I went back the next year and taught my regular class. But at the same time, I was traveling and doing anything I could to spread the word about the book. And then I had this interesting experience that most teachers don't have, which is that I would be the teacher trying to explain the teaching profession in the in the political scene or on the news or in a conference while also teaching in a classroom. And I found that it was kind of hard to summarize the profession in the way that some people wanted me to, which was actually one of the reasons that when I heard about the NLC, I I jumped on the opportunity because I saw that I was being put in a situation where I was kind of involved in politics or, or public speaking on behalf of teachers in a way that I had not expected to be. So yeah, that was something I, I needed to get better at. And then I feel like in my years in the, in the classroom and I'm still working in, in schools now in some ways coming more from the outside in, there are lots of teachers who've told me over the years that they want to write a book. Uh, very few actually do. So I'm, I'm very curious how you took an idea of, you know, I want to put that first book together. And obviously you, you have this book as well. Um, what were the steps in your mind that you felt like had to happen for a book actually to come come true? What kind of steps did you take in terms of day-to-day life, making sure that you wrote the pages, and then how did you actually get it published? There's there's a long answer and a short answer to that. <laughs> the long answer is divided into a 12-email um, email series that I've put together for anyone who asks me, how do I get a book published? And it's basically, I've been an author for 12 years, if you taken from the day that I first went to a workshop about how to get a book published. And so it's 12 emails that summarizes 12 years of becoming an author. And you could find that on my website. If you're really into this question, Um, (laughs) you could find it on my website at the bottom of the homepage. Um, For people who are just a little bit interested, uh, I went to a workshop that laid out the steps of the publishing process. And then I just took it from there through trial and error. And did you find yourself, yeah, setting time limits like each night I'm going to come back after I teach or after I do lesson plans on the weekends, I'm going to write 20 minutes, 40 minutes. Like how did you kind of piece by piece put it all together? As a, as a teacher, I was always way too tired to, <laughs> to write at the end of a school day, but I did a lot of writing on the weekends and in the summer. And I've also always been pretty good with the, the idea of the one month challenge. So I mean, te- writing a book takes years, but there are chunks of the job that you can break down into one month at a time. And especially with the novel, I happened upon this thing called National Novel Writing Month, which is something that now a lot of teachers do with their students, where I think it's something like half a million people sit down for the month of November And on November 1st at midnight, they start writing the first words of a novel. And by the 30th at 1159 p.m., they have to have a 50,000 word first draft, which sounds almost impossible. But what it does is it leaves you no time to go back and second guess anything you've written. So I spent years where I would bribe 
some of my high school students to participate in this. And then one year, one of them said, why aren't you doing it? And that happened to be the year that I was finished with my other book and I was looking for a new project. So that's how this, that's how adequate yearly progress came about. And that's what I would recommend for anyone trying to do a big project like a book is just figure out what the first month long thing that you need to do is and schedule around that. When we come back, we'll talk more about Roxana's latest book and ask her some more also about the national landscape of education. Thanks for listening to the Zag. We'll be right back. So, Roxana, especially in this calendar year of 2018, there's been a lot of teacher news nationally, whether it's been uh, teachers advocating for higher pay in red states. Uh, there's a lot of drama right now in Los Angeles around a potential teacher strike. Uh, just based on your experience, and, and I'm sure you've traveled to many states, talked to many different teachers in many different situations. Uh, how would you describe your your overall education politics at this point? That is a... That's a complicated question. And can I just answer a slightly different question or a a slightly different version of the question? One of the things that I've noticed when I was in the NLC is that education is one of those issues where almost everybody who supports public education and who is involved in public education is a democratic voter and um, would identify themselves as being progressive. But I also found that this issue of all the issues that were covered in the NLC is the one that Democrats and Democratic voters are most divided on. So and maybe that's just because I don't know as much about the other issues, but I I just felt like something like LGBT rights, either you either you care a lot about it or you care a little bit about it, but you kind of all agree on what the best solution is. and. That's not the case with education. So one of the things that I wanted to do in the novel and that I found NLC helped me do tremendously was to try to capture the entire education ecosystem with all the different competing ideas about how to best educate students and how to best run the public education system. And then I tried to capture how those ideas bump up against each other in an actual school. And then how much of that would you say was based on experience for you in a in your school where you taught in your own teacher's lounge and how much of it was uh, you bringing in interactions you've had outside of your own school? What I what I try to tell people for for questions like this is there's nothing in the book that's like secretly based on me with the name changed <laughs> or um you know a specific one-on-one character with the name changed. But a lot of the ideas for the book came to me during the school day, and I wouldn't have time to really write them down, but I might overhear something in the hallway or notice something about the way students are interacting, and I would just send myself a quick email about it. And then when I sat down to write, I would pull out all those emails and figure out what might be incorporated in the book. So, for example, I had an incident um, early in my teaching career in Houston, which I think you mentioned uh, you were recently in Texas, yep. right? And I don't know if you've seen the size of cockroaches in Texas, but they're they, a little large. Yeah. They are huge. So I just, early in my career, I had an experience where I saw this 
giant cockroach just kind of limping through the classroom. And when I looked closer, it was limping because it had like a hair stuck to its leg. And then there was something stuck to the hair. And it was just an all around disgusting experience. And then at other points in my um, teaching career, I've seen how students react when there are bugs in the classroom. So little details like that come together. And then I realized, hey, there, there can be a major plot point that revolves around you know, a roach crawling through the classroom. The novel is set in Houston um, with a hair stuck to its leg and some, uh, some candy and dust stuck to the hair. And then the, the story kind of comes to life hinging on that detail. I can't believe I'm talking about this in an NLC podcast. No, it makes sense. Hey, you're, you're <laughs> okay. speaking my language. It's not, uh, not you know, a progressive issue. Perfect. Yeah, not not only you know was I in Houston recently, but I mm-hmm. grew up in Houston, so very very familiar with cockroaches in classrooms. So I, you are speaking my language. I'll definitely buy the book immediately for that story. <laughs> okay. For that story alone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe last thing in talking about buying the book. How does the world of things like Amazon or uh, brick and mortar bookstores like how does that work in terms of getting your book out and making sure people can buy it? I mean, you can buy the book anywhere that you buy books. So it's just, um, and is there any strategy about like where you place them or are there any games to be played with, you know, how high or how low your book shows up on any of those sites? I'm kind of, kind of curious from a backend standpoint, how that works. uh, You basically just hope that as many people hear about the book (laughs) as possible. There are, you know, there's plenty of advice for authors about how to make your book more visible. But I think a lot of them come down to the popular books will be visible on, on all the sites. And what I do think is helpful about not just Amazon, but any online version of a bookstore is that any book can pretty much be bought from any bookstore at this point, I think. Um, you just, if you're looking for it, you'll find it. Now, to be on the front table at Barnes & Noble that's probably a you know hundred thousand dollar investment from your publisher or some some type of behind the scenes thing has to happen that I wouldn't know too much about. Got it. Makes sense. Well, listen, everyone should definitely check it out. The book is called Adequate Yearly Progress. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all sorts of the places where you buy books. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Zag. If you are done reading books for a little bit, you can always catch up on all the past episodes. There are ninety of them iTunes Store, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places you get your podcasts, you can catch up on the zag there. Thanks for listening to this episode. We will catch you soon.